Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Karen Pugliese, former news boss at APTN, Neiman Fellow at Harvard, professor at TMU, managing editor of investigations at CBC, editor of Canada's National Observer, and now editor-in-chief of Canada Land. Welcome back to Shortcuts. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. I was thinking this is our first Shortcuts together. It is this our is first so Shortcuts exciting. together, yes. Today on the show, the Canadian government has had it up to here with oligopolies, uh, American ones, that is, not any of the many Canadian ones. And the first woman to head up the Assembly of First Nations is out after just two years due to some combination of any or all of her own alleged misconduct, a conspiracy to depose her, and or one of the mill misogyny. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and this is Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by... Sarah Hanafi, Katrina McGuire, Alexandra McKinnon, Mark Turnbull, Troy Stozik, Braden Jones, Gregory Hempel, and Roberta. I'm Roberta. I'm a singer-songwriter currently residing in Hayesville, Ontario, and I'm a Canada Land supporter because listening to these podcasts makes my brain better. Finding out what's happening in your community could soon get a little harder. Canadian news could soon disappear from Canadians' Google searches and their Facebook and Instagram feeds. It's in response to Bill C-18 recently passed. Which will force tech giants to cut deals with media publishers for sharing and directing users to online news content. When the government's Online News Act takes effect at the end of the year. 
One upside to following the Canadian government's ongoing battle, the tech giants, is that we finally get to feel like we're living in the future. Like a a semi-dystopian future, mind you, but it's still fun to imagine each news lead as the opening crawl of a mid-budget 1990s techno-thriller with glowing blocky letters set against a hazy orange cityscape. In the year 2023, two corporations, Google and Meta, control what can be seen on the internet. The taxation of hyperlinks to news stories is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with an information blockade, the tech oligopoly has stopped all posting to Canadian news sites. Okay, I actually just started stealing from the Phantom Menace there. That's pretty (laughs) close to the actual opening crawl. Bill 18, the Online News Act, became law on June 22nd. That's the one that would force Google and Meta to pay news businesses for the privilege of displaying links to their content. But even though it's not law, it doesn't actually come into effect for at least another several months as the government and the CRTC, that's the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, sort out the details of how it will actually be implemented. And that's afforded Google and Meta a new window in which to ratchet up their pressure tactics, the latest escalation of which has seen Google say that they're not only going to keep Canadian outlets out of Google News, but to de-index them from search results entirely. Like their FAQ, but this actually has a question, how will Canadians get timely access to local news and information from Canadian publications? Offering the answer, well, Canadians will continue to be able to access all news sites by typing the outlet's web address directly into their browser, or through apps, newsletters, aggregators, and other channels. Which is sort of like saying, well, all household plumbing is being eliminated, but don't worry, you can still trudge over to the neighborhood well. So Karen, we've talked a lot about C18 on the show Or, well, this show has talked a lot about C18. I've never actually had the opportunity. I'm not actually sure if you have either. What take could we offer that would irritate Jesse the most? (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I, I sit beside him now, so I just irritate him all day long. You know, I think that Jesse and I see this differently in Mm -hmm. some ways. I, both of us do not like C18. I mean, I think that that's fair to say. To begin with, it's a law that had, to me, some semblance of sense from it. Not the way that Jesse kind of describes it that, which is also like more than one thing can be true. Mm-hmm. Jesse describes it as it was trying to resolve the fact that Google and Facebook were just better at selling ads. And this was seen as taking ads away from the media. And mm-hmm. damn it, that was their money and give it back. I saw it a little differently because I come from broadcasting mm-hmm. and particularly worked at APTN, which was a must carry mm-hmm. and a must pay. So for people who don't know, The CRTC can force cable companies to carry certain stations and make them pay so much on the the cable dollar for that content. If cable has no content on it, why would you have cable, right? And then privates, if it's not mandated to carry, then they just negotiate by Mm. themselves. So, So this is very similar to like what people are trying to do with news on these new platforms. And there's a logic there that makes sense. If the platforms are benefiting from having Mm. news... Maybe they should negotiate this. But, I mean, the bill's whack. I mean, like, I just mm. don't know. Like, it, it, it doesn't translate well. And I just don't know how you would actually execute this messy thing. It is a very messy thing. Senator Paula Simons likes to call it a Rube Goldberg device of a subsidy machine. And that's kind of what it is. While researching this, what I figured out was so, I mean, the, the one obvious, well, there are a few obvious questions. One is, If the point is to rebalance the wealth between Facebook and Google and news publishers to say that, okay, regardless of why or how, these companies have all of this money and they're getting richer and richer and news companies have less and less money and they're falling apart, what can we do to shift some of that wealth over? Well, the most obvious thing would be a tax of some sort. And I mean, obviously, you know, a tax of some sort, then we know 
the government could fund news directly and people would still – a lot of the same people who object to this would still object to the government funding news. But what I realized or what I discovered is like, OK, Australia, this is all modeled, of course, on Australia's news media bargaining code. Before they got to the news media bargaining code, what their idea was was a tax. And they had, the reason they backed off on it was because this was in 2018 and the Trump administration signaled that that would basically start a trade war with the United States. Hence coming up with this basically this Rube Goldberg device of a subsidy machine to try to accomplish this in a sort of sideways manner. And the remarkable thing is that it seems to have worked in Australia, but only kind of just barely. A lot of the, what's given the, the Canadian government confidence to sort of keep going with this, to keep charging forward has been, and they keep pointing, like, well, it worked in Australia, it worked in Australia, it worked in Australia. And I mean, that's what the, the minister's default line has been. One of the people who was in charge of there, Rod Sims, he was the head of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission in that whole period, retired from it last year, is now a professor at the Australian National University, has been cheering on Canada in this fight. He spoke at the House of Commons. He spoke at the Senate. He's written op-eds on it. And at the Senate, at a Senate committee hearing at the end of May, he was specifically asked, like, what does he make of these threats? And here's what he said. When Google threatened to move search out of Australia and Facebook threatened to take all news and emergency advice off their platform, there was a large pushback from the Australian population that this was Google and Facebook being disrespectful to Australia and dis disrespectful to Australian politicians. So I think there is an underlying democratic issue there. I should just add that, I mean, it's very hard for Google to take search out of Australia. And I think it's extremely hard of Google to take search out of Canada. If it left one major country, such as Canada, and a new competitor was allowed in, I think that's a big threat to Google. So it's not clear to me that Google were ever going to carry out the threat in Australia. I suspect not in Canada. So in Australia, Google was threatening to pull out entirely. Here, it seems like they're being a little smarter by just threatening to take news out of it in a way that a lot of people probably wouldn't notice. What is the proper reaction? Is it they don't we don't negotiate with terrorist type of approach <laughs> that that I think the federal government is about to deliver? Or is it to say like fuck this law does have some fundamental issues? Maybe we should revisit it. I think both things are true. I mean, well, first of all, just on the Australia point, remember when they canceled news? They canceled news very broadly. Oh, Facebook when Facebook. Yeah, when Facebook did big public pushback. And they'd actually accidentally canceled some health sites and other things. Mm -hmm. The pandemic was still going on. So I think that kind of helped. And we're not in necessarily that situation in Canada. But having said that, I mean, first of all, everybody knows the bill is very unwieldy. Like this link tax idea and somebody has to sort out which links actually belong to quote unquote news and which links are just blogs and how much money you get. Like, it's just, it, it looks like a crazy bureaucratic nightmare. But having said that, there is a little bit of a free speech issue here. Typically, free speech, you think of it in between government and the people, mm. not between corporations. And really, this is how I've thought about it, that really, Twitter or Facebook is no more mandated to publish my tweets or my posts. Like, they can kick me off the same way a newspaper was never mandated to publish my letter to the editor. There's always been gatekeepers. And I know, like, my son, who's a millennial, used to argue with me that, no, these platforms are so powerful, actually, that they do have a different role to play in free speech because we become so dependent on them. 
And I think that's that's one thing to consider. But the other thing that bothers me more is the I'm the biggest man in the room thing, like the strongmanning of democracy. Like we have a legitimate government here that went through a process, whether we like the bill or don't like the bill, they were elected and they went through a legitimate democratic process to get a bill out. And the corporation is now going outside that democratic system to do things to change the law. I mean, going to court, talking to opposition parties, waiting for a new government to be elected to reverse the bill. Those are all sort of inside. But I don't like this outside the democracy push on government. I'm not so innocent as to believe like this kind of blackmail thing doesn't happen all the time. I'm sure it does with big corporations. It's just really interesting that it's so public and we're seeing it. In some ways, it's a standard advocacy campaign from a business that doesn't want to be regulated or just doesn't like the way the government is regulating. I've, I've, you know, you see this happen on every level of business. I, you know, saw this, see this happen, saw this happen with like billboard companies in Toronto. You see this happen at, you know, convenience stores don't like the laws around, you know, how they have to display cigarettes or not. Companies and associations mount pressure campaigns and that's kind of what they do. And in this case, they happen to have a significant amount of leverage. But once again, like that in and of itself isn't isn't unusual. And I guess that's the thing is like in a way it did like kind of cause my heart to jump when I saw that, oh, Google is actually threatening to de-index Canadian news sites. Or Instagram, as it, you know, just came out, like which is owned by Meta, they're just not going to allow Canadian news organizations to post. Like the post just won't be visible. Like it doesn't matter if it's what what is it, you know, if we we're turning our episodes, if this episode is turned into a hand like a slideshow on Instagram, that counts as news. We can't post it. So like it is it is aggressive. They they are playing hardball and they're seeing how far they can push. But at the same time like that's 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 what you'd expect a business to do. That's what you expect any business of any size to do. That's kind of what they almost always do, especially if they have money for lobbyists and a sophisticated strategy. And in pretty much every case it's up to the government to hold fast against that and say no, screw it. We we have these public policy objectives. We're going. We're going to go through with them, no matter how much you threaten us. That's exactly what the U.S. government is encouraging us to do. Because mm-hmm. they're next. They've got a Senate bill that's very similar to the legislation that Canada has going forward, and they've said, "Hold your ground, Canada." Leading up to now, I think a lot the tone of a lot of the punditry is was maybe similar to Jesse's. Like, you know, fuck, what is the government doing? You're being super counterproductive. You're pissing off these. There's you're you know build, building this this legislation on this fundamentally dishonest premise, and I do agree about that about the idea that they're stealing news being fundamentally dishonest. But in the past few days, it's it actually has changed. There's been I would say this I don't know if rallying is too strong a word, or even this nationalist spirit is kind of like weird. But there has been like this feel like no yeah who who are you to push us around? I mean Sandy Grosseno had a column in the National Observer on the headline Silicon mobsters chokehold on Canada, and that's kind of been the tenor of a lot of the coverage is like who are you to push us around? In Australia, my understanding is there was a fairly united front within the government and among the people about like because you know Facebook they did take out news in the middle of like wildfire season in the middle of pandemic they pissed off a lot of people all at once. Whereas here, I suspect that what the companies are counting on is to be able to 
leverage political divisions that maybe didn't exist in quite the same ways on this issue in Australia. I was surprised, not surprised, but like looking into this, I found that, oh, three separate conservative MPs provingly cited Canada Land's position or on it uh, in their speeches <laughs> to the House of Commons last month. Do you think that we have the, imagine there's, I imagine there's some really good Australian slang term for it, but do we have whatever it is the Australians had that were able to, the fuck off attitude. Like that doesn't, that doesn't seem like what's characterized as Canadians or this government. No, I, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll be very interested. I was looking at Brody Fenland's piece that he wrote. He's the editor-in-chief at CBC. And I guess this has to be accidental, but he's one of the 5% of Canadians that they're blocking right now. And he's mm -hmm. looking down his Instagram and news has disappeared and there's this message on it explaining why they've taken the news off. You can't see news in Canada because of this bill. And I'm wondering what side Canadians are going to land on on that, whether it's going to be a kind of meh, I'll just go to the website, or whether it's actually going to rally them that they can't access news on this platform. I, I do think the U.S. example, or what's going to happen in the U.S., will maybe also determine what happens in Canada, whichever way this goes in Canada. One of the things in the U.S. is for all the criticism of media. When I've been down there, there's also a lot of respect for it. I've walked into rooms where I've introduced myself as a journalist and people go, wow, a journalist, as if you're like a doctor or a lawyer mm. or something, you know, and we're not used to that in Canada. But free speech, access to media is something that is really prized in the U.S., whether you're on the right side of things or the left side of things or the alt-right side of things. So I think whatever happens in Canada, this is going to play out again in the U.S. And I think U.S. citizens will really stand up for it. Canadians' default reaction to anything out of the ordinary, especially anything particularly complicated, is to sort of shrug and like, it'll be fine. We'll get past it. And that, especially when you're dealing, yeah, with, dealing with, you know, two of the largest American companies, global companies there are. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they've obviously they've obviously bet that they can win this stare down. But I think that we just have to look at them as, yeah, not too different from a convenience store. And I mean, if anything, frankly, I wish that the Canadian government would treat Canadian monopolies and oligopolies this way. Like imagine them talking about uh, Bell and Rogers in these terms. I think this country would be a better place for it. This episode is brought to you by Article. Article believes in delightful design for every home. They put a lot of care in making sure each piece on their site strikes a balance between style, quality, and price. Karen, do you have an interest in decorating? I do. Ooh. I once painted my bedroom plaid. How do you even do that? You need like, a oh, lot of I'll rulers? show you pictures. <laughs> Probably harder to paint a patio plaid, in which case, if you have outdoor space, you could check out Article's curated catalog of outdoor furniture. They've got everything from outdoor lighting to sofas to side tables to dining sets. I've checked out their stuff and they've got some pretty nice looking items. They've got a great variety of outdoor lounge chairs and some really cool bread and some really cool bed frames. We've got an Article couch here at the Candleland office that I'm a fan of. Article ships right to you. They offer fast and affordable shipping across Canada and they'll give you updates on delivery every step of the way. Article is offering our listeners 50 bucks off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash CanadaLand and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Karen, as you know, on this show, we like to duly note things. Is there something you'd like to note, Julie, today? 
Yes, I've got a shout out and a duly noted. So, you know, the Native American Journalists Association? Yeah. Yeah, Natcha. It's it's coming to Canada. It's usually held down in the States. The conference is going to be in August in Winnipeg. I'm going to be there with Kim. Mm, That's Kim Kim Wheeler, Wheeler, the producer on Canada Landback. We'll be talking about Landback and uh, Canada Landback and podcasting. But that's not the that's Mm -hmm. not the shout out. CBC Indigenous and APTN have uh, reporters have won a bunch of awards, but somebody you know won. Did you win an award? No, not me. <laughs> I thought this would be easier. Oh, um, Used to D- work. D- Denny. Yes. Denny Ver- Dan- Danielle oh, Parody amazing. won. Yeah, for best story in her category. So yeah, Danielle Parody used to be a contributing editor here. We worked on. We we're together on a lot of the written stuff on the website in 2021, and now she's uh, the Alberta slash Western correspondent for APTN News. Yeah, so it's fantastic for her. That was my shout out. My okay. really noted is that there is this film that is going to be playing there called Bad Press. It's been at Sundance, but anybody who's going, I think, will want to see this. It's about Angel Ellis, and she's an American Muscogee journalist, and she's worked at a tribal paper since 2008. Uh, She got fired at one point for doing an expose of an official who was arrested for embezzlement, and then she went back to the paper. So a lot of tribal papers in the U.S. are actually funded by the tribe, and they have sort of their own constitution. It's a little bit of a different setup than in Canada. And out of 574 federally recognized tribes, only five of them have laws protecting a free press. But here I am reporting on news topics that maybe don't show my tribe in the best light. But do you want a friend who will lie to you and leave you walking out the door with a booger hanging out your nose and, you know, toilet paper on your shoe? Or do you want a friend that will stop you and say, hey, check your face? That's how I view my job as a journalist. And so what happens is she goes back to work for this paper and somebody decides that the press isn't favorable enough and they decide that they're going to take it over and all stories printed in this paper are going to have to be approved by the government before they're printed. Most of the reporters quit. She stays, and the documentary is about her staying and trying to save the press freedom legislation that the tribe has because they want to take it out. Where's the tribe? They're in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Angel is like an amazing journalist, like an amazing personality. She's funny and like a super strong journalist. So she's going to be there, and they're going to watch this film. So Duly noted. I would like to note Duly. 129 Peter Street, which is just sort of opposite the Candleland offices. It's like one block northeast at uh, Peter and Richmond. 129 Peter Street is a referral center for street outreach in Toronto. So the idea is that people who are in need of shelter for the night go there and they're connected to a team that sort of puts them in a place for the night and tries to, you know, ultimately, ideally get them into a home. It's not supposed to itself be a shelter, although... In the dead of winter, when putting sending people out into the street would be a death sentence, it's sometimes become a shelter. But in the past few weeks, the sidewalk in front of it has been filled up with people and filled up with suitcases. I saw uh, that. I walked by that. Yeah. Yes, uh, and it's uh, suitcases and luggage to a, I say an, an unusual quantity that you, you normally find from street involved people. And thanks to the Toronto Star, um, the front page today, I have. And we have an answer as to what's going on. The headline on the front page is, quote, I didn't expect this, and asylum seekers left to sleep outside amid funding fight between city and feds. 
It turns out, per Victoria Gibson's wonderful story, what's happening is that asylum seekers coming to who've come to Toronto are basically being told by the city, you got to go talk to the federal government now. We're out of space. We don't have the money to house you. We're just overloaded. Call Service Canada. And Service Canada is like, we're Service Canada, you know, to call the city. And so in this funding fight where, you know, I'm sure the federal government should give the city more money, the city has made this decision to basically shove them off on the federal government, at least theoretically do that, in order to, you know, impress the need for more money. So but that all the while, the newcomers cluster outside the referral center, say they've been left in a ceaseless telephone back and forth between the city's shelter intake staff and federal offices, while being left asleep on the hard pavement, the situation and weather taking a toll on their mental and physical health. The quote, sometimes they tell us to call Service Canada, but when we call Service Canada, Service Canada refers us back to central intake. So the city made this change in policy about a little over a month ago on May 31st. And they wrote that, well, since 2016, the number of shelter spaces in Toronto has expanded by 125% from approximately 4,000 to 9,000 spaces needed daily. But over the past 20 months, the number of asylum seekers in Toronto's shelter system has multiplied by more than 500%, from a low of about 530 per night in September 2021 to more than 2,800 in May 2023. And the city also noted that they closing Roxham Road did not lead to any decrease that they saw. So that's what's going on out there. Those are, by and large, asylum seekers who have nowhere to go, and because it's it's not like it's the weather outside is only deadly hot and not deadly cold, they have been left there in the hopes that that'll show the federal government that the city needs more money to help accommodate them. Yeah, always nice to use human beings in bargaining. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. 
Well, we have some breaking news now. The Assembly of First Nations has voted to remove their National Chief Roseanne Archibald from her position. The first National Chief, man or woman, to be removed before the end of her three-year term. Former National Chief Roseanne Archibald is speaking out part of a public push to try to get her job back. So just before Christmas 2020, Karen, you wrote a column for Canada's National Observer called Indigenous Women Leaders Are Having a Me Too Moment. Commenting on an academic paper that interviewed dozens of female chiefs about their experiences, you wrote, If those interviews indicate what it is like to be a woman in First Nations politics, it's no wonder so few ever run for office. Frankly, the paper makes it sound like a shit show. And the term shit show is definitely echoed in my <laughs> mind as I've attempted to wrap my head around the situation at the Assembly of First Nations as it enveloped and swallowed the first female national chief to lead it, Roseanne Archibald, who was ousted last Wednesday, June 28th. There's bitter factionalism reminiscent of the kind of war you might see between, like, the mayor and councillors of a mid-sized municipality and matched by the, maybe, like, the, the articulation of the dynamics of power and oppression that characterizes disputes inside many university student unions, which is emphatically not to minimize the organization itself or any of the issues at play, but rather to try to illustrate just how, I don't know, un- unfortunate... It all is. When in Indigenous communities, we say it's it's like a band council, and we say it negatively. I mean, there are many good band councils that are run effectively, but when we say it's like a band council, this this kind of mm-hmm. nonsense is exactly what we're talking about. Sort of that combination of the personal and political. Finger-pointing yeah. accusations, what's the truth, people undermining each other, lateral violence, all of it. It's like superficially could call it drama, but it's all deeply ideologically driven with different people who genuinely believe that and probably genuinely do or are acting in what they believe is the best interests of the community of the, you know, the organization more broadly. And it definitely sounds like, yeah, I mean, it has it has kind of the predictable result. We need to actually think about how do we heal the situation? And you don't heal the situation by attacking and being laterally violent with the first woman national chief in the history of the Assembly of First Nations. And I know that this pushback I'm getting is because I have been fighting corruption at the AFN since October of 2020. That was Archibald in a video she self-recorded in a car and posted online late Monday evening. It has strong leader in exile vibes, and she's asking people to write in an effort to get her reinstated. Karen, on top of everything else that makes you infinitely more qualified to discuss the subject than I am, <laughs> you worked in communications at the, for the AFN from 2007 to 2010, the latter portion of which you spent as the comms director. So where would you like to begin with this conversation? <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that there wasn't any nonsense mm. that went on when I was there, but there wasn't this level of nonsense. I mean, things did happen. Strange things happened. There was one point before I became the communications director where it was rumored that the national chief had gotten in a fight with the communications director, and our offices were all up on the 11th floor, which was the important floor where Mm. the national chief's office was, where the key policy people were. And he made us all pack our offices and move down to the 7th floor. And then the communications director resigned, and we were all allowed to move back up to the 11th floor. So, I mean, there were silly things like that that happened, but for the most part, I would say that we had a, a fairly effective CEO in there at the time that protected us from the political office, and the political office wasn't really too bad. But you can see, like, from a story like that, just how weird things happen, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a 1950s governance mentality that I think some chiefs have picked up and not been able to shake off from colonialism. So 
This has been going on for a long time. Things weren't great under Perry Bellegarde either. My take on this is that there have been problems there before her that were never addressed. In fact, when I wrote the article, mm-hmm. she'd been subject to some lateral violence inside an executive meeting that had occurred at the AFN, and I had two sources come forward to tell me that the male regional chiefs were ganging up on her and another female regional chief and making a bunch of noise during the Zoom call when they would try to speak, telling them, we don't have to listen to you because we'll just outvote you anyway. I mean, those kind of things. So that's how it ended up that a resolution went before the AFN long before she became national chief herself. And it was called Becoming a Role Model in Ending Sexual Orientation and Gender-Based Discrimination Within the Assembly of First Nations. And so that process started before. And I just find it interesting that whatever Roseanne has done or not done as national chief, that the first time they ever decide to deal with, you know, chiefs behaving badly is when a woman's in charge. So yeah, Archibald was the ninth chief and national chief of the AFN, or the 13th overall, if you count its early years as the National Indian Brotherhood. Terms are usually three years each. Previous national chiefs averaged about five years across all of them. Archibald lasted two. And the whole other layer of this, which I think you alluded to, is that she was also trying to look into alleged financial proprieties connected to her predecessor, Perry Bellegarde, who was the national chief from 2014 to 2021. And so in late 2020, around just a coincident, like around the same time, you were, you were at that National Observer store and you were hearing about this. She said like she started to also hear about financial proprieties. So she started to hear about financial proprieties. Bellegarde announced he wouldn't seek re-election. She accused him of obstructing passage of that motion, calling for an independent investigator review of sexual orientation and gender-based discrimination. And then a few months later, they passed a resolution calling for an independent review of the executive committee because it's alleged financial impropriety. Shortly after that, she says that's when Bellegarde notified her of harassment allegations against her. There was an investigation in May of 2021. She was then elected national chief in July of 2021. The following spring, there were some complaints against her. Regional chiefs on the executive attempt to suspend her. The AFN retained an investigator. They expanded the scope of review to include a fifth complainant, who was the then CEO. Then they had another. Like, it just go, keep, basically it keeps going on and on. And it's to figure this all out, I had to look at different sources and create this long timeline for myself to actually, like, to see it. I had to visualize it because I'm, I'm sure listeners like be like, oh, I can't wrap my head around it. And I think that's fair. The reporter to follow on this has been Brett Forrester, who was at APTN and is now at CBC Indigenous, but has really been on top of covering the AFN. You're right. It's complicated. You have to keep eyes on that baby. But it's important because it is the number one advocacy group for First Nations people across Canada. It's indirect. I mean, it's through their chiefs and then, you know, the chiefs and assembly and then the regional chiefs and it has the structure. But essentially, it, like, it can be a very important and very useful institution. When Phil Fontaine was there, he was able to get the TRC He was able to reverse the conservative government's position on compensating residential school survivors, which was no small job. And so it can do really effective things. Brett Forrester has been covering all of this. So, I mean, he's really the person to go back and read if you want to understand what's going on. He has the original allegations of harassment. He has covered questions about how Perry was running the finances, including giving contracts to his wife when it's kind of against the rules. Brett Forrester is the key to understanding all of this. I I don't know anybody who's been on top of it as much as he has. 
What about Jaime Rubinstein? <laughs> I discovered we're looking at this at the hard right or the far right or whatever you want to call it, True North Center. Like, they, they have a surprising amount of interest in this. And which That's I, which, so weirded me out when you showed me that. I didn't realize that the hard right or, or the far right would be interested in the internal politics of the national body for First Nations people. But I guess that's the any, any opportunity to sort of point out, I guess, what they see as corruption, right? Yeah, I mean, I th- I thought it was interesting that they're very uh, sympathetic to former national mm-hmm. chief Roseanne Archibald. That was the part that kind of struck me is that it read very much like an article that you would read in the CBC or even somewhere a little bit more far left. So it yeah, it was, the article itself, like yeah, yeah I, I didn't scru- it, we didn't scrutinize it too closely, but like oh, they're skimming like skimming skimming like oh, this is actually. This is, seems okay. What are yeah, we it, it didn't take the jobs that I, I kind of thought there were an opportunity for people to take, like First Nations people can't govern themselves, or the mm-hmm. things that I'm used to to reading in a, a more populist or far-right publication, you know, that kind of questions those things. But even when I was at APTN, we used to have a following amongst some of the far-right. I think I was mentioning to you this morning a blog called Small Dead Animals Mm -hmm. that used to republish a bunch of stuff from APTN because APTN does do a lot of the accountability journalism on First Nations when things are not being done as they should be done. Karen, how do you think the mainstream media has been covering these unfolding events over the past week or so? I think it's been like very disjointed and they're having a hard time putting it together. That's that's why I mentioned Brett Forster mm-hmm. as somebody who's really the one to follow because there's this long history that kind of predates the election of the national chief where, you know, there has been questions about spending, there has been questions about harassment and how staff were treated and nobody really cares up until the moment that she gets elected. I feel like the media, like, generally doesn't know where to go next with the story. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to solve the problem of the version that Roseanne Archibald has is that she's been removed because she was looking into corruption and people don't want her to find out the truth versus she's a big bully. And they just don't know what to do with those two narratives or how to dive into it or investigate it. I think the Indigenous media is going to be the one that breaks up. There's definitely been issues there for a while, I think. I left halfway through uh, Sean Atlio's term, and I ended up going back into journalism, which, you know, like was was great. So I haven't seen the insider stuff for a long time. But when the stuff comes up, there are people who talk to me on background anyway and have told me things like, There was a point where all their contracts were reviewed and a clause was put in to make it more easy to fire people. There were accusations of mistreatment going on for a while. And then Brett's coverage of the contracts with Perry. I mean, I I think there's a lot there to put together. It's interesting because I was thinking there would be like maybe an irreconcilable tension that there is no one right answer that would ever eventually emerge. But you think that there is something that will eventually come out that will help clarify the situation? Well, you know what? If we we still have news somewhere on social media where we can read comments, the comment section, I think, is what I want to look at most now. Hmm. Because that's coming. Yeah, I, I love the grassroots people take on these things. When First Nations people get a chance to really discuss whether or not the AFN is even going to be relevant anymore after this, hmm. they don't hold back. Like, they express how they feel about it. This is an organization that they know is funded to represent them. And it's a circus right now. I mean, nobody's feeling good about that. 
That is Shortcuts for this week. Thanks so much for joining me, Karen. Oh, thank you for having me, Jonathan. Yay, Yay us! We are on Twitter, still, amazingly, at CanadaLand. You can email me at jonathan at canadaland.com. Like Jesse, I will promise to at least read everything you send and be grateful for it, even if I don't get a chance to reply. Where can people find you, Karen? Well, you know where they can find me now, Karen, at canadaland.com. Uh, <laughs> This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Canada Land's Commons podcast is just finishing up a whole season on hockey. The dark side of hockey, that is, because it is Commons after all. Their finale looks at hockey fights and the many blows to the head that players endure, which have become a moral crisis at the very heart of the sport. And for its part, the NHL is doing everything it can to deny the science and, and allow the gladiatorial combat to continue. And if you haven't been listening to the season of Commons, just think, like, if fighting is the subject of just one episode, and the last one at that, how much other terrible stuff there must be about hockey that you may not have even considered before. And the episode also marks the 100th Commons hosted by Arshi Mann. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.